first we celebrated and now we reflect on the Clearwater sale to Mi'kmaq First Nations. What does it mean for corporate control, the inshore fishery, and the owner-operator rule? I'm Glenn Wheeler, and this is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. This is episode 159, and a special thank you to listeners like Allison Smith, who support us on patreon.com forward slash Mi'kmaq Matters or via email transfer to mi'kmaq.matters at gmail.com. Well, I'll leave. This week, more on the major corporate move by six Mi'kmaq communities in Nova Scotia and Mi'obigag in Newfoundland. All 13 Mi'kmaq communities got an invite. Only one Mi'kmaq band in the two provinces was left out in the cold. And that was, of course, Halibu, left out just as it was last year, when all 14 Mi'kmaq communities in the two provinces, all but Halibu, entered into a revenue-sharing agreement with Clearwater regarding the surf clam fishery. Why is that? We'll see if that question comes up at the meeting of Halibu Chief and Council. This coming Saturday, November 28th, starting at 10 a.m. Newfoundland time. Halibu members can watch the live stream of the meeting. Make sure your info is up to date on Ginu, because you'll need that to sign on. One thing that for sure will confront Chief and Council is enrollment. Supporters of Mi'kmaq people who have been denied or lost their status in Halibu will gather on the majestic lawn outside the Halibu building, Starting at 9 a.m., members of the group call themselves the Lost Ones. They include Greg Jaynes, former chief of the Burgio Band of Indians, who lost his status card because he spent time away from Burgio serving in the Canadian Forces. We had expected vets and RCMP officers to have their status cards back by now, but there's still no sign of that. The group is inviting Chief Brendan Mitchell and members of council to meet with them before the meeting to provide an update on enrollment. Joy followed news that seven Mi'kmaq communities would spend $250 million to purchase Clearwater's offshore lobster licenses. It was the perfect antidote to those awful images of moderate livelihood fishers being harassed by non-native fishers in southwest Nova Scotia. Now, we Mi'kmaq people would be the boss. But what does it mean to have Mi'kmaq involved in an industrial operation such as Clearwater, a convicted violator of fishing regulations? And what does it mean to have Mi'kmaq with one foot in the inshore fishery and another in the offshore? Is that the first step in the erosion of the owner-operator policy, which requires harvesters to fish their licenses personally? Many questions, few answers. For analysis of the Mi'kmaq Clearwater Buy, I turn to Tony Charles, a professor in the School of the Environment and the School of Business at St. Mary's University in Halifax. Tony, so let me uh, tell listeners a little bit about uh, you, and uh, they'll understand why I'm so pleased to have you on the on the program, uh, talking about the the Clearwater sale. Um, you. Uh, your um, 
a senior your senior research fellow in environment and sustainability at St. Mary's. And you teach in the School of the Environment and the School of Business. So I think, you know, that's covering a lot of the bases that uh, come up in this Clearwater story, uh, sustainability and, and business. Uh, plus, I see that um, soon after the Marshall decision came out, you received a Pew Fellowship for a project called Turning the Tide Communities Managing Fisheries Together, which is also relevant to this discussion, this discussion I think. So it's great, um, it's great to have you on the program. So um, maybe I could ask you first, uh, you know, I could ask you the where were you question. Where were you when uh, you got the news about the Clearwater sale and, uh, and how did you hear about it and what did you think? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's such a, a profound event that uh, one remembers where they were at the time. Uh, but, you know, I was here in Halifax, um, uh, you know, perhaps uh, working on, on some other fishery topic. And um, I've been uh, I've been monitoring for uh, the past several weeks um, and and doing some writing as well about the uh, the relatively new Mi'kmaq uh, moderate livelihood fisheries. And, and so, you know, in a sense, very focused on, on those new fisheries and how, uh, how they're developing and, and some of the issues and, uh, and concerns from, uh, from the conventional uh, lobster fishery sector about that. Uh, so it came, um, you know, it came out of the blue and we're suddenly shifting attention from the uh, what are really community-based local level fisheries, the moderate livelihood fisheries uh, the Mi'kmaq uh, First Nations are developing, in, uh, you know, turning to this billion dollar deal for a very large uh, seafood company and, and fish harvesting company. Um, in fact, the, the, the connection, uh, I, I happen to have been writing an article uh, two weeks ago, perhaps something like that, that was, th that was discussing the, the emergence of more Mi'kmaq presence in the fishery generally. And uh, I, I, one little paragraph of that article uh, referred to uh, saying, well, you know, in terms of possibilities, maybe, um, maybe we might look at the offshore, the, the more mm. um, industrial fishery sector as a place where there could be uh, increasing Mi'kmaq involvement. And, and just, I, I must say, I was very surprised where that, I thought that was just uh, an idea that I was floating out there. Uh, and then within two weeks after that, um, the deal was announced. Uh, not that my article had any bearing at all on that, but uh, it was just for me something where I thought it was just some ideas, uh, but now they're reality. But I wonder what it does for a discussion about communities, because you are uh, in your work, you talk about how uh, community c control of fisheries is a good thing, both in terms of um, of uh, sustainability and in terms of uh, economic uh, fairness. Uh, you know, it, it helps to uh, circulate more monies, more money in communities. But now we have uh, different communities. We have uh, Mi'kmaq communities that are part of the Clearwater deal and those that are not. We have um, uh, Mi'kmaq communities that are that have moderate livelihood fisheries and are in the Clearwater deal, so they're they have a, a foot in both camps, and we have the inshore uh, 
commercial fishers uh, in southwest uh, Nova Scotia. So uh, it must make the, uh, the situation a bit more complicated from your point of view. It, it is. And, you know, let me say that, that I do have uh, a particular um, belief from everything I see that, that fisheries that are based in local communities on the coast, where the local community depends on that fishery and they, uh, they've, uh, in a sense, developed with the fishery uh, so that the people on the coast and the fish in the ocean are, are connected together closely. That kind of situation to me is important both for the social fabric of a place and for the sustainability of the resource because people who live in a place tend to be better at taking care of the resources there, in this case, the fish, the uh, uh, let's say the lobster in particular. So I think community-based fisheries are important, even though my preference is, to, is for more local community-based fisheries. As long as there's going to be those offshore fisheries, then in my opinion, not having seen anything, uh, this is just a new deal now, but I would like to think that on a scale of Atlantic Canada, where you have the Mi'kmaq Nation having been here for 13,000 years or so, uh, that, that if you're going to have someone, some people taking care of a resource on a larger scale across Atlantic Canada, because the offshore fishery is, is a more, uh, it's not as localized as community-based fisheries, it's more large scale and, and covers the Atlantic more, um, then I'm happy to see the Mi'kmaq nations uh, involved in that. Let me ask you a bit about uh, the Mi'kmaq involvement, um, because the impression we get is that uh, Clearwater will remain an entity as it is now. Uh, the ownership, uh, the management uh, team will stay in place and uh, Mi'kmaq will be uh, part owners along with premium brands. But the, if we were looking at it from the outside, we would not see much difference in the way Clearwater operates. And we know uh, from uh, previous media reports that uh, Clearwater has been uh, guilty of uh, violations, fisheries violations of the 72 hour rule. So do you think uh, that the uh, merely, merely Mi'kmaq ownership um, will make any difference to Clearwater in the way it operates? Well, that's that's a very uh, important question. And, uh, you know, it's it's too early to see that. I, I you know, I think, um, you know, when when you refer to uh, violations of of the regulations and uh, behavior that's not uh, in the spirit of conservation, well, you know, the new owners of Clearwater are going to have to deal with that history and, and we're going to have to wait and see, I guess, what uh, the new owners have to say about the practices of Clearwater. Um, and, and, you know, I know that I will be watching that because, you know, I, like, like so many of us, I, you know, I do care deeply about conservation and the, the sustainability of the resource uh, so I think that's going to be an important thing for us to watch. Mi'kmaq First Nations, some Mi'kmaq First Nations are part of the, the coalition, but then uh, 
Perhaps 50% of the control of Clearwater will be in the hands of a holding company, premium brands, that, that, do, that doesn't live here in Atlantic Canada, that, that's from the west coast of Canada, that, that has been buying up many different seafood companies, I gather, recently. Um, we'll have to wait and see how that balance happens in terms of the, uh, the ownership of Clearwater and the, the conservation behavior of Clearwater. Uh, it, it's something really to monitor because that is uh, an important aspect. The spirit of the, of the new moderate livelihood fisheries, uh, the, the underlying nature of them, in fact, uh, I've seen Mi'kmaq chiefs referring to these moderate livelihood fisheries as, and pardon my pronunciation here, Nathugamuk fisheries, which brings in the Mi'kmaq uh, spirit of, of attention to conservation and, and, and taking care of nature. Uh, so the moderate livelihood fisheries have that, that strong potential and they all come with management plans, those, those inshore fisheries. I guess what I'll be interested to see is, does that, does that approach uh, carry over to this offshore and to, and to clear water? Mm. The other, the other issue you've raised is the relationship between Clearwater going forward and the uh, the inshore uh, fishers, because Clearwater is also a buyer of the of the inshore catch. And um, you know, I guess uh, if you're an inshore fisher, you always you always want more for your catch. And uh, you know, um, and Clearwater would be uh, you know is is the buyer, but I. I wonder if it's realistic to think that anything about the relationship will change because, of course, the, the Mi'kmaq coalition, as uh, they've paid a lot of money for Clearwater, and they'll need to make a return on their investment. So is it realistic to think that anything will change about the, that uh, Clearwater insure uh, buyer relationship? Well, that's, that's a, another good question, right? The, the, um, what we've just been talking about, in a sense, was what does Clearwater do in the offshore area in terms of their fishing activity? And, and this point is how, how do they behave in terms of their buying of lobster inshore, close to shore, from a whole range of coastal communities all across the, the region? And that is, is also a really important question. Um, maybe they just stay the same. Um, you know, any any um, anything I could say at this point would just be speculation because we really don't know what will be the uh, the objectives of their buying of lobster. Um, I like to think that that perhaps with a and this again is just you know thinking out loud about it that a coalition of First Nations, each First Nation being rooted in communities, that that maybe that will bring to the buying of lobster, uh, an increased uh, understanding of the importance of maintaining the health of coastal communities all across the region. In other words, a kind of a community understanding that perhaps wasn't there as much before, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe that comes and, and maybe that just helps to ensure that, uh, that the buying of lobster uh, takes into account the importance of coastal communities. Mm. 
So if we could, uh, if we could look, I mean, if you could visualize uh, a happy ending for this story, uh, that um, the Mi'kmaq purchase of Clearwater leads to something good and better than what it is today, what what would that future look like if uh, if you could have it uh, your way? Well, uh, you know, I guess I guess to me, there's um, there's three big important objectives that I have in my mind. Uh, one is uh, is um, the uh, the increasing the importance of increasing the role of uh, Mi'kmaq First Nations in the economic life of the region, and. And so that that's something that that comes in many different ways. It's not just by buying uh, a large uh, company like Clearwater, but that is a component, I think. So so that's one element. The the uh, it, so indigenous fishing rights and in, and indigenous involvement in the economy. A second is the importance of the co- of the rural fabric of the region, and in particular the coastal communities of the region. How do we how do we ensure that communities all along the coast are, are, uh, are and can increasingly be uh, in a healthy state. And the third is the environment. And we talked about that earlier, the conservation uh, aspect and how important it is to, uh, to be careful about the, uh, the ocean environment and the, the ocean life uh, within it. So those three aspects, I guess, if we can, if we can keep all those in mind, uh, both in terms of the, the corporate side and the uh, coastal communities and inshore fishery side, I think that would be the the win 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 kind of uh, situation. And uh, whether we whether we see that happen, we're, we'll we'll have to keep monitoring. Um, but certainly, uh, I think there's um, there is a lot of uh, of knowledge that's built up about how how to manage fisheries and how to maintain conservation in the ocean. That, that is found in First Nations, but also in a whole range of coastal communities across the region. And so, you know, we need to be tapping in to the knowledge base of, um, uh, of everyone in the region to, uh, to achieve those, those big aims, I think. Mm. Right, Tony. Well, as, as you say, there's a lot, uh, a lot uh, we don't know at this point. And I, I wonder, maybe the last thing I could ask you is myself, I've been struck by the, you know, somewhat, uh, not to be harsh on, on media, but a somewhat superficial quality about the coverage thus far. It's uh, covered the announcement and, you know, the, the positive aspects of it, which, uh, and of course we recognize those, but um, I wonder what are the, uh, what are the questions uh, that we should, uh, that, reporters should be exploring uh, as we go forward and want to know more about um, about uh, the purchase. Well, I guess one thing would be, and this might be uh, something uh, as a teacher of business that uh, you're curious about, is the is the structure of the deal and what the various uh, uh, actors will be doing as part of this uh, new arrangement going forward. Uh, what, what else uh, are you wanting to know uh, to completely understand what's happening here? Well, I, you know, I think the one of the big fundamental uh, issues that we're facing that that is actually uh, it's it's a bit hidden away in the in the discussion of all this, and and that is the the nature of of um, who is uh, who 
who is the fishery in a sense? Uh, and I don't mean just the Clearwater uh, aspect, because as I said at the start, you know, there is this Clearwater, Clearwater exists. It, it, it's built up over the years. It's had a monopoly of lobster licenses in the offshore area uh, for quite a long time until very recently. And now, now basically it's handing over those licenses to, uh, to this coalition of First Nations. But it's, it is that this is a very corporate part of the whole fishery. Um, to me, the lifeblood of the fishery and the coastal communities is the inshore and in particular, the independent operators in the fishery. The, what we call the owner operators, the ones who, uh, and, and this, is, this is true whether it's non-Indigenous or Indigenous, the people who have boats and operate their boats and going out fishing, the, the community-minded people in a sense. And you know, to me, the, the key issue is to ensure that whatever happens in the corporate side and in the inshore side doesn't jeopardize that uh, the, the independent fishers all across the region um, of, of all forms, uh, indigenous, non-indigenous, um, whatever species they're fishing for, that's the lifeblood that really keeps the coastal communities going and coastal First Nations going. As, uh, so um, that's something to, to be looking out for. The, um, even though we're talking here about a big corporate deal, ultimately the health of the region, I think, depends more on what goes on in coastal communities. Mm. So uh, you're concerned about any erosion of that owner-operator uh, rule uh, in the fishery that, um, you know, it's, there is, we've made a policy decision that, that uh, the fishery operates that way. So uh, with, um, with Mi'kmaq buying uh, Clearwater and there's a bit of an overlap between moderate livelihood and, and uh, the Clearwater deal, it somewhat muddies the waters a little bit potentially. Well, yes, you know, I, I guess that um, when I think about what people know, uh, you know, there's, there's, um, I think there's a wide range of Indigenous knowledge that non-Indigenous folks all around this region need to, need to understand uh, the, the, the whole idea of, of Indigenous knowledge. There's also, I think, that, that as Mi'kmaq First Nations get more into uh, lobster fishing and other kinds of fishing, there's also the, the struggles that mostly non-Indigenous fishers have gone through, especially over the last 25 years, to maintain the independence and the small boat nature of the coastal fishery in the region. And so I think one thing that's important for Mi'kmaq First Nations to know is that struggle that's gone on to maintain that small boat fishery. And it's been tough on a lot of coastal communities that uh, that have had to uh, make uh, have to work hard and and engage in protests and so on to keep that fishery as that owner operator idea. Uh, that is important. The other thing that I think they are very clear on in the lobster fishery is the importance of avoiding setting quotas, catch quotas in the fishery, which was the the one of the big factors in the cod collapse that was almost 30 years ago now was the, the, the failure of setting quotas. In fact, the lobster fishery on the coast 
around Atlantic Canada has operated very nicely with uh, trap limits instead. So how many lobster traps you can set, not by deciding on how much catch you can have. So there's some understanding in the fishery of what has worked over decades and decades. And, and that's an important knowledge base, I think, to, uh, to build on. That's a bit different in the offshore where Clearwater uh, catches lobster. They have a different management scheme there. But for the inshore, it's important for everyone to know what has worked and, and why it's worked over the years. Tony Charles, a professor in the School of the Environment and the School of Business at St. Mary's University in Halifax. That's it for the program. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for the latest Mi'kmaq news and views. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Nimaltus. Mm-hmm.